0: It's the second homestand of the season, and Walters is ready to be your pre- and post-game spot this weekend. Bottomless Brunch starts at 11 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. Enjoy Bottomless Mimosas, Bloody Marys, Truly, and Bud Light for only $20 with your purchase of a brunch entree, be it beer, burgers, bourbon, or baseball. We encourage you to walk on over to Walters.
1: It's supposed to be a beautiful weekend. The Nats have a four-game weekend series against the Diamondbacks, including a day game on Saturday before Sunday as well.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Nothing in two. Ross trying to finish it off. He deals. Swing and a miss. He blew him away at 94 to the outside. Joe Ross with six shutout innings. That's strikeout number five.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, April 15th, 2021, along with Nat's insider, Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, and we have a Nationals win to discuss. We have a National series win to discuss for the first time in this 2021 season. A 6 0 shutout victory at the St. Louis Cardinals on Wednesday afternoon. Mark, as hideous as the loss on Tuesday night was, That's how nice this victory on Wednesday afternoon was. Very nice bounce back for Davey and the boys.
1: They won a series, Al. You know, as bad as things looked there, not that long ago, they won a series in St. Louis. And you know which two games they won? They won the game started by Eric Fetty and Joe Ross, and they got blown out in the game started by Steven Strasburg. Baseball, you never know what you're going to see.
0: No, you don't. But if this is a sign of what's to come from those two starters, Fetty and Ross, you absolutely take that. You hug that with all your might if you're a Nationals fan. Outstanding stuff from Joe Ross. Much more on that coming up momentarily. We always enjoy hearing from you. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to get on board, become a sponsor of the Nats chat podcast, contact the General manager of this operation. He is the Mike Rizzo of Nats Chat as opposed to the Jim Bowden of Nats Chat, Tim Shover, So you can reach us again, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. So, so much to like from this Nationals win on Wednesday afternoon, but I don't know that you start with anything other than the starting pitcher. Joe Ross was terrific for a second time in as many starts this season. Ross and four Nats relievers, none of whom you would call part of the A bullpen, the varsity bullpen. Actually, end up combining on a four hitter. It's was, it was actually really great to see that. And Ross was awesome. Great, like I said, for a second time at his many starts, six scoreless innings, five strikeouts, gives up just four hits, two doubles, two singles, and one walk. He throws sixty-three of his eighty-nine pitches for strikes. So far, so great for Joe Ross. This has been one of the best, maybe the single best development for the Nationals so far this year.
1: Yeah, I think you can absolutely make that argument because it's not just what he's done for them to date, which they've needed, but this bodes really well for the long term. I mean, how long have we been talking about one of these guys stepping up and showing that they can be a consistent, successful big league pitcher? And Joe Ross is showing it in two starts now at Dodger Stadium and at Bush Stadium. So we're not talking about facing the dregs of the league here, 11 scoreless innings, nine base runners, nine strikeouts, I believe. And the stuff is good. He's not just getting by by inducing weak contact. He is throwing 95 mile an hour sinkers with Greg Maddox-like movement on them. He's countering that with a slider that's breaking the other direction. He's basically getting by, or he did in this game with two pitches, and that can work when they're as effective and well-placed and moving in opposite directions as they were. This is tremendously encouraging. You don't want to, you know, jump ahead too far here because you still need to see it over a larger sample, but this is kind of what they expected all along and what they really did feel like Ross was set to do for them last year before he opted out. He has basically picked up where he left off, and that is a a tremendously encouraging sign for them.
0: Yeah, and you said it. He didn't pitch at all last year. So you didn't know what to expect from Ross, especially given how topsy-turvy the last few years have been for him. He's dealt with injury, including Tommy John surgery. He's dealt with inconsistencies, kind of been yanked all over the place. You know, it was two years ago. He spent a good chunk of that 2019 season pitching in the minors. Like, I think that kind of gets forgotten. He got shipped down in 2019 but he's been excellent so far this year. And what I really like, too, about his outing on Wednesday afternoon, he did get into some trouble, but he worked himself out of it. Bottom of the third gives up a one-out double to Tommy Edmond, ends up striking out Paul Goldschmidt on four pitches, then gets Nolan Arenado to ground out for the third out. I mean, how about that? You're facing Goldschmidt and Arenado, and neither guy ends up getting to you. Bottom of the sixth, Ross gives up a two-out double to Arenado, then strikes out or Molina on three pitches. Spoiling game number 2000 for Oyadi, uh in that spot. Was Joe Ross so tremendous to see that? And you know, it's funny, right? Because like we did the thing this past spring training for like I think it was uh, the uh, 12th consecutive year of Joe Ross versus Eric Fetty versus Austin both for that fifth spot. But it never really was a competition, right? I mean, in fact, did Davey even ever announce Joe Ross as a fifth starter? Like it kind of just felt like that was accepted. (laughs) May well could end up being he's much better than their five starter as this year goes on. Like we may look back at him as their number four, maybe their number three if he keeps this up.
1: Yeah, it's funny. You're right. He never did formally name him the number five starter. Maybe in part because he knew you never know what might happen. And and technically, I guess he's their number four star at the moment with Eric Fetty as a number five, although he started the fourth game of the season in L.A. So I agree. I think even when John Lester comes back and let's see what he has to provide them. I don't I don't want to assume anything here, but I don't think it's unreasonable to believe that when it's all said and done, the Joe could be their fourth best pitcher. I probably wouldn't go so far as to say third best pitcher, because I do want to believe that Patrick Corbin is going to return to form, but it wouldn't be the craziest thing if that happened. I mean, this is someone when he first came up, and it's been a while now, and he's been through a lot since then, but when he first came up, the stuff he had, the poise he had suggested that he could be a solid middle of the rotation starter for a long time. It's taken a while, and there's still a lot left for him to prove, but what we've seen so far absolutely suggests that he can be that guy.
0: Yeah, I mean, that trade, that three-way trade that Mike Rizzo made years ago when he got back both Trey Turner and Joe Ross, I mean, that was viewed as one of the great ninja Rizzo steals. And, you know, as time has gone on, it's like, yeah, Turner is the real find in that, Paul. But it's like, no, Joe Ross was in that package too. And so we get back to where Ross was at, say, 2015, 2016. It's of such help to the Nats. And then with the bullpen on Wednesday, you end up getting ultimately three scoreless and also hitless innings from four Nats relievers. Now, things did get a bit dicey in that bottom of the seventh inning. Sam Clay and Tanner Rainey. Clay records the first two outs of the inning, but also issues a one-out five-pitch walk to Austin Dean, and then a two-out hit-by-pitch of Edmundo Sosa on a one-two pitch. Rainey is in, does get the final out, so you get out of the inning unscathed, but he does issue a two-out five-pitch walk to Dylan Carlson. So, it, it was, you know, a little tenuous there with the bases juice, but the Nats get out of it. Then Wander Suero, the uh, Suero meter mark gets uh, ratcheted up again and a perfect eighth for Suero. He's looked good here. Struck out Paul Goldschmidt. And then Austin Voth with a perfect ninth. So especially with four consecutive games over four days coming up against the Diamondbacks, that you're able to win this game without having to use a Brad Hand or a Daniel Hudson. Big time win for the Nats in that regard.
1: Yeah, the Suero meter is up to eight in nine games. Again, that is appearances <laughs> plus... Warm-ups. So that is now six appearances plus two warm-ups in nine games. And some guys are better the more they pitch. And this may be one of those cases. He looked very good. Austin Voth also. We we talked about him after the game on Tuesday night. This to me was really fascinating. He pitched back-to-back days for the first time in his career. Maybe ever, as far as we know, because he's always been groomed to be a starter. And even though at the moment he is their long reliever and they need to have him available for that. Davey Martinez was talking about him before the game as someone that he believes could be successful in the long run in shorter bursts. And you saw that on Tuesday, and you saw it again Wednesday. The fact he could bounce back, having never done it before, pitch back-to-back days, through strikes, eight of 11 pitches, the velocity was there again. That's encouraging. You know, we'll see moving forward again. I think they have to sort of save him as the long man most of the time, but there may be spots they can do this. And Tanner Rainey, he's still not all the way back but I thought he looked better. The fastball had a little more life on it. He hit 95. He got out of the jam. He threw strikes. Better signs there that he is coming around, and and maybe it is just a matter of needing the work that he didn't get in spring training before he's 100% again.
0: So tell me if this is a fair thing to say or not. If you take out Luis Avilan's performance on Tuesday night, Nats relievers in this series combined to give up one run In 10 and the third innings. Now, I know saying, you know, can you take out Abilan's performance? It's like saying, you know, if not for the double murders, OJ Simpson was a great guy. So it's like, you know, it's like, I I don't know, can you really do that? But if you do do that, it actually was a really good series for the Nationals bullpen, kind of sneakily so, but the bullpen got the job done with the exception of one guy in one inning. But there's actually a lot of good stuff from the Nats' pen in this series.
1: I'll allow what you're saying there. I think that that inning obviously was a disaster, but he got thrown into a spot where the bases were already loaded. And as things were getting worse, if that game is close, he's getting pulled at that point. He's not going to be left in to finish it out. And maybe somebody else does, you know, mop it up for him. So I'm okay wiping that one out. And I really like what I saw from all of them. Hand, it's only one appearance, but he looked good. Hudson looked good. Like I said, Rainey is getting better. Suero is pitching a lot, but has been effective. Aaron Perez has shown that he can be a weapon out of the bullpen as well if they ever need it. So encouraging. Let's see, you know, I guess in one way it's a good thing they haven't needed to rely on the big names too much so far. Let's see once they do have to start using them in close games, can they be counted on, you know, three out of four days, that kind of stuff. But the good news is they haven't needed to do that yet. And so if they are in a position on Thursday against the Diamondbacks, everybody's fresh and able to do it.
0: Yeah, no doubt, and it does seem like maybe possibly there is some depth with this bullpen. You know, time will tell. But Davey's being able to use a variety of people, he's gotten some good outings from a number of people, and uh, you know, it's Swero day in day out. But at, at the same time, it's also been some other guys getting the job done. <laughs> Hey everyone, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. We've all had that dream. Tie game, bottom of the ninth, base is loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right, new users get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in site credit each day If your same game parlay bet falls one leg short, this way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. Endless baseball betting options on FanDuel that you can enter into, including the 75K MOB Grand Slam or the 100K MOB Monster. There's a reason. FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use, they've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay, and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code CHAT.
2: 21 plus and present, Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk free bet. Refund issued as non withdrawable site, credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply, see terms at sportsbook.fanDuel.com. Gambling problem, call 1 800 522 4700 in Colorado, 1 800 bets off in Iowa. One hundred nine with it, Indiana. One hundred two seven zero seven one one seven for confidential help in Michigan. One hundred gambler, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee. One Or in West Virginia, visit www100 one net. Are you
1: interested in buying or selling your home? Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate. By focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram
2: at real Rachel. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 2-0 pitch, breaking ball, line drive up the middle, one hopping through, a base hit at a center field for Harrison. In from third to score is Soto, two runs home in the inning, and it's now the Nationals four and the Cardinals nothing.
0: So with the Nationals offense on Wednesday afternoon, nine hits, seven walks, Nats put up six runs in the game. They do, as Mark Zuckerman wanted them to do, get out to a lead, you know, get your starting pitcher off to a good place. The Nats did do that on Wednesday afternoon. And the guy who ended up being not just the best hitter for the Nats in the game, but really in the series, Josh Harrison. So Josh Harrison misses the first six games of the Nats season due to COVID-19 protocols. F.P. Santangelo on the telecast did say that Harrison was sick. So I don't know if we consider that to be confirmation that he had COVID-19. You know, I think we all kind of presume that. But whatever the case may be, Harrison was out. He plays his first three games of this season in this series. He goes six for 11 with a double, five singles, two walks, three RBI. And Harrison in the six nothing win on Wednesday afternoon, two for three with two walks and an RBI of one out four pitch walk in the top of the second, two out first pitch single, top of the third, two out RBI single in the Nats, two run fifth, and a two out full count walk in the top of the seventh. He was a machine in this series. And You know, we spent so much time in spring training, right? Oh, third base and Carter booms out. And Starling Castro has to go from second to third. And now you got to play Josh Harrison every day at second base. So far, so good for Harrison. He was outstanding at the Cardinals.
1: Yeah. So after starting out 0 for 3 to begin his game Monday night, his season debut, it was after that 6 for 7 with two walks. That'll work. And he did it on Wednesday. This kind of went under the radar. He was batting 5th for them. That's not a place you would typically expect Josh Harrison to be, but the makeup of the lineup and the guys who had the day off, it just wound up being him there and it, and it worked. And so, you know, he is a guy who's easily overlooked and he may be a victim sometimes of his versatility. And when you see someone like that who can play multiple positions and play them well and just be a good solid ball player, the tendency is to say, "Okay, this is someone you want on your bench. This is someone who maybe is going to start 3 days a week." bouncing around to multiple positions and then come off the bench in key spots. And I think that would be a great role for him. And we've seen that he can be successful in that role, but he has also been an everyday player in his career. He was for the Pirates. He was an all-star for them. He's a little older now. I know that the tendency would be to say on a good team, he probably should be coming off the bench, but that doesn't mean he can't also be productive as an everyday player. Let's see the physical grind of it. If he is indeed playing every day, how does that affect him? But he looks healthy. He has performed really well. He's looked good in the field as well. He brings energy to the ballpark every day. And as much as we talked about, oh, we got to wait till they get Bell and Schwarber back. Well, it was actually Bell, Schwarber and Harrison they needed back. And all three of them made a difference in this series.
0: So Harrison, like you said, has been a good player. It's not like this guy's been a nothing player. He had some very good seasons for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But what I find especially interesting about Josh Harrison is this. He is the latest in a lengthening line of guys who the Nats have gotten basically off the discarded pile, have brought to D.C., and then those guys have done well. Josh Harrison, how did the Nats get him? They signed him last July off him having been released by the Philadelphia Phillies. Harrison was bad for Detroit in 2019 struggled with the Phillies last season. Nats get him last July. He, over the rest of the season for the Nats, has a .352 on base percentage. And now, you know, albeit over three games this year, it's done well. But you look at the Nationals' recent history with guys like this. Josh Harrison, Azdrubal Cabrera, Gerardo Parra. The Nats have had this, like, sneaky penchant for getting guys DFA'd or cut by other teams, veteran guys, bringing those guys here, and then those guys do well. And I know, like, it doesn't work out every time you do something like that. But it seems to happen more often than it should, or more often than it happens with other teams. I don't know if Mike Rizzo's got a good eye for this stuff. Maybe it's just plain luck, like who knows. But man, the Nats have had a real knack for this over the last few years.
1: I think there is something to it. And I think it's also about the culture they've established, where they value veterans here. And you can scoff at it all you want and say, hey, it's just about, can you play or not? But at a time when other teams are saying that veterans are not worth it, that we want to go young... The Nationals have said, no, we want experience. We think experience matters. And not just experience, but guys who they feel like will fit into the clubhouse. And all those names you just mentioned fit into that description. They're not bad guys. They're good clubhouse guys. They're well-liked. They're well-respected by their peers. They're players who, even if the guys on this team didn't know them previously as teammates, they knew them as competitors and knew what kind of people and players they were. And I think there is something to be said for that. No, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes some of these guys are are past their prime, but when you come into a clubhouse where you are embraced, despite being 33 years old and despite having been released by someone else, and that team still believes that you can contribute to them, I think there's something to be said for it. We saw it help them win a World Series, and it's interesting that they're not backing down from that philosophy. They're staying with the old guys, and not just because they think they have to, but they want to. They think that that is a valuable commodity to have. And I don't think that's necessarily a wrong approach to take.
0: No, I mean, you brought up how everyone's going younger these days it's that classic thing of when everyone's zigging, you zag and you can exploit a real market inefficiency where if everyone is just poo-pooing all the older guys, you get the best of the older guys. You bring them to your ball club and you watch those guys have success. I mean, the Nets have done this with some pitchers in recent years, like Greg Holland. They brought on board a few years back off him being really bad. He was good. Edwin Jackson, a few years ago, if you remember, like they actually got some good mileage out of Edwin Jackson in his second go-round with the team. It's 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 remarkable how they've had this minus touch with, Uh, the old guys here. Speaking of old guys, how about that plate appearance by Ryan Zimmerman on Wednesday afternoon? So he's the number three batter. You know, I was all set to say on this podcast, oh my God, Ryan Zimmerman's not a number three hitter anymore. What are they doing? Boy, does he shut me up. That was some job (laughs) that he did. That one out full count, two run homer in the top of the third of Adam Wainwright. Zim is down in the count at 1.02. It ends up being a nine pitch plate appearance. And, uh, well, I guess one old guy gets to another, Zimmerman on Wainwright.
2: Ryan Zimmerman's first home run of the season just
0: clears in left center. It's a two-run shot. And on the ninth pitch of the at-bat, Zim goes deep to give the Nats a 2 nothing lead. But terrific job by Zimmerman there.
1: All right, let me give you some some numbers to, to back all this up. This was the 899th time in his career Ryan Zimmerman has batted third for the Nationals. By far the, the spot he's hit in the most in his career. Now, only the 12th time He's done it since 2013. So it's been a while and he hasn't been doing it very regularly, but he has experience versus Wainwright, 44 career plate appearances against him. This was his fourth career homer off him. He's got an OPS against him over 1.1. He knows him. He's faced him. And that at bat, he knew Wainwright's going to try to get him out with the curveball. It's one of the best in baseball. And Zim managed to find a way to foul him off, take some tough pitches that were just off the plate. Get himself into account where he finally got a fastball that he could drive and he drove it out of the park. And we were talking, you know, only a few days ago about how, yeah, he's hitting the ball hard, but it's all singles. Is he going to elevate one? Is he a power hitter still? Yes, he has the ability to do it. And he did it after taking the last two nights off, at least from a starting role, because Josh Bell was back in the lineup. So maybe a rejuvenated, refreshed Ryan Zimmerman had something in the tank there and able to hit the ball out of the park. And just to wrap up the point about all the veterans, Zimmerman making $1 million this year. Josh Harrison making $1 million this year. It's not just about going out and getting veterans, but it's, a, it, it's actually smart, savvy moves because you're getting a lot of bang for your buck with them.
0: Absolutely. Production per dollar is there. There's, there's no question about that. Trey Turner had himself a good game Wednesday afternoon. He needed that. He had not had a good series at all. 0 for 5 in game 1, 0 for 3 in game 2. It totaled four strikeouts over those first two games. But on Wednesday, Trey 2 for 4 with two doubles a walk and at RBI had a leadoff first pitch double in the Nats two-run fifth, a five-pitch walk in the Nats one-run sixth, and then a two-out first pitch RBI double in the top of the eighth. And it goes down as a double. This is one of those classic things where if you watch the game, I mean, that, that was that was not a true double. It's a lazy fly ball that lands between three Cardinals fielders and no man's land in shallow left field. I mean, just awful communication there by the Cardinals. So, I mean, hey, good for Trey gets credited for a double, but that, that wasn't some, you know, laser off the wall, but still a couple of extra base hits was good to see that. We need to come up with something though, in terms of scoring for plays like that. Like that to me is why errors, it's almost like a meaningless stat now. That's an error. That's a team error. When three guys let a ball drop like that in no man's land, the accounting for that shouldn't be a double to me anyway.
1: I was going to use the exact same phrase, team error. I'm a fan of Developing that for those plays that just it's clearly would not be a hit if the play was made behind you, but you can't necessarily blame one particular player for it or another. Even the fly ball loss in the sun, I get it. You can't fault the fielder necessarily for having no chance at it, but you can't fault the pitcher either. I don't think they should be to blame for it. So, how about the just generic team error on those plays? I'd be all for it. And the Cardinals had a few of them in this series, their outfield was very questionable. In the series, some bad communication, and uh, as much as maybe sometimes we harp on the Nats for not doing the little things right, hashtag the little things, the Cardinals were not very good at it for a franchise that try has for a long time prided itself on doing things the right way in front of the best fans in baseball, and uh, they didn't play a very clean series, I didn't think.
0: No, and they love to tell you they do things the right way. Oh, yeah. Do they do things the right way? Yeah, just ask them. They'll tell you they do things the <laughs> right way. They didn't do things the right way in that instance, no doubt. And like you said, at various points in the series, one other guy who hit well, and you know, it's so easy to take this guy for granted, but Juan Soto on Wednesday, two for five with an RBI. Soto in the series ends up going six for 12 with a double five singles a walk and three runs batted in. Like, oh, ho-hum. You know, Juan Soto bats 500 in a three-game series at the St. Louis Cardinals. Had himself a one-out full-count single in the two-run third. Full-count ribby double in the Nats, two-run fifth. And he was down in the count at one point in that plate appearance, one-two. And then grounded out into a force out there that uh, ended up plating a run in the top of the sixth. Now, I do have to ask you about a boo-boo involving Juan Soto in this game on Wednesday. And it involves him making yet another out on the base pass for the Nats. He gets caught trying to steal second base for the third out in the top of the sixth. And it's not just that, it's the spot in which this happened. Runners at the corners. Zimmerman is batting, albeit with an 0-2 count, but you know that is your number three batter for the game. The Cardinals reliever Jordan Hicks throws to the second baseman Matt Carpenter for the out. Soto, I don't know why, doesn't even get into a rundown. He just keeps running to second and If he gets into a rundown, maybe Victor Robles is able to score from third. Instead, the Nats in another spot that is primed for run scoring. You know, the run expectancy in a spot like that is better than normal. Runners at the corners, even with a couple of outs. And you run yourself out of the inning. And I know you talked about this. How Soto wants to become more of a base dealer. I don't know. Can we maybe shelve that experiment for at least a little while? It doesn't seem to be off to a very good start.
1: Oh, I've been waiting for this rant because <laughs> Dan Bellino at second base hadn't even finished the out signal. And in my head, I immediately thought, Galdi, Galdi's going to be furious about this one. And rightfully so. They can't keep making these kind of mistakes. Thankfully, it didn't cost them. I think, you know, we, we actually, we didn't ask about it after the game and we probably should have, but there was enough else going on. I think the idea there was that you take off from first, Try to catch them napping and maybe get yourself into a rundown while Robles scores from third and steal a run. Although it's two outs in the inning. So even when you get tagged out, the inning's over and you you got Zimmerman and Schwarber coming up. So like there's still a chance at a big inning there. So I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of the philosophy. I don't know why he didn't stop, why he just went for it. Maybe he actually thought he was going to be safe. Just not a real smart play. I'm going to grant this one toot bland status. I think he was thrown out on the bases, and he did wow. indeed look like a nincompoop in the process. Look, Juan Soto is great at everything. It's nitpicking to do this, but he's not a perfect ball player. Nobody is. And in this case, he is tagged with a an official toot bland on the Zuckerman scale.
0: First one of the season. Victor Robles did not get a toot bland for his base running boo-boo there a few games back. So, by the way, with that Robles one, Davey made it clear that was Robles' call. With Soto, I guess we don't know. Was that Soto's call or Davey's call? Yeah. um,
1: well, Like I said, I, I wish we'd remembered to ask about it, and we didn't. Uh, there were other things going on, and it you know, did become a footnote in the story. So we'll find out. Maybe we'll find out on Thursday. I'm guessing that that—boy. I'm guessing he did it on his own because Robles never broke from third. And you would think that as soon as the throw came down to second, Robles would have at least taken a few steps, you know, maybe given it a shot and he didn't. So he appeared to be not expecting it to happen. And the fact that Soto didn't stop to get himself into a rundown suggests that maybe he did it on his own. All's well that ends well. It's not the end of the world. Hopefully they learn from this and hopefully uh, we're not talking about too many more toot plans moving forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did go 6 to 12 in the series. Like, it's just, it's so easy to take Juan Soto for granted. We want to never do that. All right. So, you mentioned Victor Robles. There are, there are kind of two prongs to our Victor Robles conversation off this Nationals win. So, Robles ends up in the series going just one for 11 with a walk. Now, the one was a big one. It was a triple on actually the first pitch of the series uh, Monday night to get things going, ends up scoring there but he also ends up striking out eight times in the series. It was not a good series for Victor Robles at the plate. Very interestingly, Davey Martinez does the thing on Wednesday of Victor Robles batting ninth, Joe Ross, the starting pitcher, batting eighth. Trey Turner was the Nats' leadoff batter in this game. Juan Soto was batting second. Now, I guess let's start with this. Why did Davey do this?
1: I think there were a few reasons why this game was the time to attempt to do it. And it was wanting to get Turner and Soto up as many times as possible, especially against Wainwright. Turner had good numbers against Wainwright. Soto didn't, but you know he wants Soto, and so you want as many at-bats from him as you can get. And Davey has, as we talked about all spring, he is intrigued by, and I think in his ideal world, he likes Soto as a number two hitter. And he even mentioned a pregame that the idea of you hate to have your best hitter in the on-deck circle in the ninth inning of a close game, and he never gets up to bat. So it was, I think, mostly about wanting Turner and Soto at the top, also trusting Zimmerman to hit third because of his history with Wainwright. And then he views the Robles hitting ninth as opposed to having him, say, eighth as a second leadoff hitter. And the idea being, okay, you're essentially taking away his first at bat from him. And then once you get down the lineup and the pitcher bats eighth, well, now it's essentially like Robles is actually your leadoff hitter now for the rest of the game. Now, the problem was, because of the strikeouts by Robles, Turner wound up leading off three times in the game. So he was never coming up with anybody on base. And so that part of it backfired. I also didn't love the fact that in the second inning, when it's still a scoreless game, it basically just allowed Mike Schilt to intentionally walk Jan Gomes, the number seven hitter, to then get to the pitcher, Joe Ross, the eight hitter. Ross struck out trying to bunt, and then Robles struck out to end the inning. So none of that went real well. I understand the philosophy behind it. I get why maybe sometimes it makes sense. What I don't necessarily understand is why mess around with something that seemed to be working well. I'm not saying Robles had been great at the top of the order, but he'd been better there than he's been elsewhere. He had reached base in each of his first eight games of the season, and historically, he has not hit well when batting ninth. Here are the numbers prior to Wednesday's game. He had hit ninth 64 times in his career. It's actually the most he's been in any spot in the lineup. He's a 204 hitter with a 256 on base percentage and 329 slugging percentage there. 585 OPS. It's his worst numbers at any spot in the lineup. He is better when he hits eighth, hits two eighty-seven there. Better when he hits seventh, two hundred sixty-one average. A little better when he hits second. He doesn't have great numbers there. But you know where his best numbers are over the course of his career, Al? It's when he leads off. 283 average, 359 on base, 460 slugging, 820 OPS. That's where he's been the best. And I know he still has some things to learn. I know it's not you know, guaranteed he's going to be a successful leadoff hitter in the long term. But what we've seen from him in his career, he does do better when he's leading off. And I feel like you made your move there. Stick with it. And if you really want Soto to hit second, let him bat second. Let Trey Turner hit third which is something he tried out this spring. Maybe we'll see that again here before long. But to me, make Robles your leadoff hitter. Stick with it. Ride it as long as you can and see if it works. And then if it doesn't, you adjust. But moving him down to the ninth spot for a day, I really didn't see the benefit of it. And it certainly didn't help them at all in this game.
0: I find it funny that one of the reasons for all this is, well, you would hate for Juan Soto to be on the on-deck circle in a big spot in the ninth because he's batting third and not second. How about you would hate for Joe Ross to come up to hit with runners with the bases loaded and one out and strike out on three pitches? That's what happened at the top of the second because that's what happened in this game. Like that to me is just way overthinking it. Okay. And by the way, another another great instance of a pitcher batting, but uh, I digress on that one. But yeah,
1: <laughs> Joe had a hit. Joe got a hit in the third inning and scored a run. So let let's let's give him a little credit.
0: <laughs> Actually, that starters have had a number of hits so far this year. But yeah, absolutely, don't bat the pitcher eighth. The pitcher is your worst hitter, and it's not even close, okay? Whatever you think about Robles, to whatever extent he may be struggling, you don't have him out there as your number nine batter behind Joe Ross. I just, I have never understood this thing of batting the pitcher eight. It is too smart for your own good. It's too cute for your own good. This whole thing about setting up batting orders so this guy leads off this inning, you can't plan on that. The only inning in which you know the order is is the first inning. After that, it's all random and happenstance. You want your best hitters to get the most plate appearances possible. All you want to do is have your best hitters and stack them up near the top of the lineup and just let them come up to bat. That's it. That's all you're trying to do. Now, if you don't think Robles is one of those guys, then drop him down. But don't put him behind the pitcher. I just, I don't understand that. And this whole thing of, oh, he's a second leadoff man. When exactly? Like you're closing your eyes and hoping for that. You don't know that it's going to play out that way. You have no idea how it's going to play out over the course of a game. I, I don't want to see this again. You know, I, I, I this to me needs to stop. Put your best guys up near the top. Let them go. And if you're down on Robles, if you feel like he's not up to the task, I mean, boy, it's early to pull the plug on him from the leadoff spot now, but then bat him sixth or seventh or do it some other way. Don't don't put him ninth like that again.
1: I know our listeners can't see us. They can only hear us, but I'll just explain to you what I'm looking at. Al's veins are bulging out of his forehead right now (laughs) as he discusses this important topic. He is passionate about this one, and I don't disagree with him. It's questionable. And I don't know if there's ever been any study to show that it makes a difference or that there's a benefit to hitting your pitcher eighth, it certainly didn't help in this case.
0: Yeah. I don't know if he was the first one who did it. Tony La Russa, I know, was big on this a few years back. Tony La Russa also intentionally walked Albert Pujols the other day. So I don't know. Maybe you don't need to do everything Tony La Russa does anymore. You know, That's just my opinion on that. All right. Real quick before we call it a show, any update on Steven Strasburg? Any word on how he's doing, whether there is a question to be asked of how he's doing?
1: No, nothing new on him today other than uh, I know Jesse Doherty, who was there in St. Louis at Bush Stadium, saw him out in the outfield playing catch, which is what you would normally do the day after your pitch. But that would suggest that, uh, you know, that there isn't an injury that they're concerned about. And uh, the Nationals announced their rotation for the weekend against the Diamondbacks. It'll be Corbin on Thursday, Scherzer on Friday Fetty on Saturday, and Strasburg on Sunday against Madison Bumgarner in a nice little matchup of some veterans who are maybe not what they used to be, both of them trying to figure it out here. So uh, the fact they already named him as a starter for the weekend, again, says to me that they are not concerned about an injury. So boy, is that going to be a big start for him? And all eyes are going to be on him right off the bat in the first inning, watching the velocity, watching the body language, watching the mechanics. Is it going to be one of those days, or is it going to be back to the Steven Strasburg that we uh, all want to believe he can still be?
0: And all eyes will be on the television cameramen to make sure they shoot the shots they are supposed to shoot. It's also going to be a big spot for Patrick Corbin on Thursday night in Game 1. He's opposing Merrill Kelly, uh, Corbin getting rocked in his uh, first game, that 9-5 loss at the Dodgers. Last Saturday night, six runs in four into third innings. What are you looking for when it comes to Corbin on Thursday night?
1: Fastball command. He's got to be able to throw his fastball for strikes. He could not do that in his first start. And when he can't do that, he just can't use his slider, his wipeout pitch, the way that he needs to. You know, the hope would be, you know, again, this is one of the guys who missed time, who wasn't able to do much while being in quarantine. And uh, hopefully that one start, he got all the, the stuff out of the way and that he's good to go. Now pitching against his former team and uh, pitching at home. So I have less reason to be worried about him. I think he'll be better. He's somebody who just needed to get back into a rhythm again. I didn't see concern with him in the spring. I think it was just the long layoff and the the weird circumstances. But yeah, an important start for him to set the tone. And just for the team now, take a breath. They come home three and six. A lot of stuff happened, but they got through it. They have their basically their full roster now. And you finally have a homestand in a four-game series against a team that's not predicted to win their division. So far, they've only played the Braves, the Dodgers, and the Cardinals, probably the three favorites. They got through it. It was ugly at times, but they got through it. Now there's maybe a chance to settle down a little bit, start playing a little bit lesser competition, not trying to disparage the Dimebacks here, and maybe have a good solid weekend.
0: Yeah, and in theory, you're starting three of your four best pitchers in this series, right? In Corbin, Max, and Strauss. So things could be set up much worse if you think about it that way. All right, keep the feedback coming. Uh, Let us know what you think, where you're at on any or all of these issues, at Nats underscore chat on Twitter. You can email us, NatsChatPodcast, at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
2: Here's the wine of the 1-1. Breaking ball, hit in the air, center field. Robles coming in. He's there. He makes the catch. And a curly W and a series win in the books in St. Louis. Austin Voth closes it out with a 1-2-3 bottom of the ninth inning. And Joe Ross has his first win of the year. The final score, the Washington National Six. And the St. Louis Cardinals, nothing. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine. But he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping